Well, good morning, everyone. That's right, Martin. <laughs> I'm going to check and see if anybody's outside ready to come in. I know it's a slim pickings today. They got the quizzing going on, and I heard a lot of sickness in the, for the little kids, so it's all good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we just uh, come before you. Lord, I pray that we come before you humbled. Humbled that we are able to be together as a body, the body of Christ. Humbled that we are able to hear your word without the fear of persecution. Humbled that we get to learn more from your word and to learn more about you. And Lord, we just are so thankful for that. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for the works you've done, the works you will do, and the works that you continue to do once um, your plan has been accomplished. Lord, I thank you for the prospect of eternal life, of life to live with you in eternity. Lord, we're so grateful and thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, be with us today, help us to have open hearts and open minds, help the word to be taught clearly, and I pray that uh, you would be amongst us in our midst. And we thank you for all that you have blessed us with. Most importantly, we thank you for your son, who willingly sacrificed himself for us. But thanks be to God that he was risen on the third day, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ready to rule and ready to be the God and the King and the priest for all of us. But we praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. So uh, it's been a couple weeks since I've been teaching. Um, I think Greg taught on, finished up 8 through 13 last week. Um, so if you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, we're going to get back into the second chapter. We're going to discuss uh, chapters four, uh, sorry, verses 14 through 19. I'll give you a second to turn to there. That'll be our main scripture for today. Uh, I try not to deviate too much from this. This is uh, probably, ve- verse 15 will be probably very familiar to a lot of people, especially if uh, you've ever done quizzing with us or with Grace. It's a very strong word, but um, the truths that were brought out from this are um, pretty cool how Paul does this. All right, let's read. Starting at verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So when we read these verses, verse 15 probably stands out to a lot of people. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But what Paul's doing again here to Timothy, which he's been doing from 1 Timothy on into the Ephesians, he's warning Timothy again about false teachers. And this is huge. This has never changed. It continues to go on. We have false teachers today. There have been false teachers from the beginning of time since Scripture was out, right? You can go back to the Old Testament and you have false teachers. Um, I was reading a book on the Reformation. And as soon as the Reformation, they start pulling away from the Catholic Church, false doctrine starts to infiltrate and starts to lead people astray. You know, we, we are the light of the world. Take one little verse and twist it. So that means everybody has a little bit of the light in them. You just got to search deeper to get more of that light out, whether you're a believer or not. So it's false doctrine that seeps in. And so Paul's reminding Timothy that he needs to be strong. He has been called, as we know, from 1 Timothy 1.18. He has been prophesied to be a preacher. He has been given the spiritual gifts. We learned that from chapter 1. But we all still need encouragement. And that's what Paul's doing here for him, to warn him against the false teachers. And he does this in a remarkable way if you look through these verses. He does a negative and then a positive, or a positive and then a negative. So there's a negative to it. We look through first, you know, do not be caught up in meaningless debates. We'll get to these things, but I just want to kind of give you an outline of where we're going. You know, Solomon charged them not to wrangle about words. He then goes on, secondly, to tell them to be diligent in verse 15. 
with God's word. We'll dig in deeper than that. And then he goes on and encourages them, do not engage in human wisdom. And don't be like gangrene, don't be spreading, spreading false doctrine. But finally he gives them a hope and a promise that he will preserve them. And a promise to those who are truly saved that they will abstain from wickedness. So as we see this, his encouragement to Timothy is to not be ashamed of God's word. And to always accurately handle the word of God so others will not be led astray. And guys, we need to be the same way. We need to be aware of all the false teachers around us. We need to be diligent with his word in order that we can see those that are coming against us. And that are breaching wrong doctrine. So he starts off here, remind them in these things. Remind who? Who do we think he's reminding? I think we can go back and we can see a little few little things. He's reminding um, the verse, uh, for, for getting verse two or chapter two, when he says the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men. So faithful men who will learn from Timothy and have learned from Paul to teach the truth. These are the ones he's reminding. It can be just the elders of Ephesus. As we know from Acts, that Paul was already concerned that there would be wolves that would rise up among the sheep to dissuade them and to lead them away from the truth. So it could be reminding the elders. Um, and it can be simply as reminding the whole congregation of Ephesus, the whole church. But I think it goes further than that. It's an active, remind is an active and present form. So he's reminding us too. Remind them of these things. And what are these things? We can go back all through the whole book if we want. But I think some of the main things that he is reminding them, too, is that one, remain faithful and continue to preach the word that's been taught. But as we know from uh, a couple weeks ago, there's some examples that he gave that he needs to remind them of. One is to be a soldier, right? What was the soldier supposed to do? This is an interactive time. What was a soldier supposed to, supposed to accomplish or to do? I'm sorry? Defy? I can't. Oh, defy. Yes, defy. Sorry, yes, defy. Yep, defend. Yep. Right, yeah. So he's supposed to obey the orders of the one who called him, right? So that's Christ. He's supposed to defend and to fight for us. And he's not supposed to get entangled in, in everyday affairs, right? And then you had the athlete. What was the athlete supposed to do? Compete according to the rules, right? Do it the right way, not the wrong way. Do you see kind of a correlation here with what I just read through 14 through 19 too? This kind of goes along with, with what he's doing here. And he reminds him too, so the athlete's supposed to do it the right way, not to deter, not to cheat. And then lastly, the, like the farmer. Reminded to be the farmer. What was the farmer to do? Yeah to plant, to work hard, and then he'd be the first to receive the share of the crops, right? He also goes on to remind him in verse 8, what? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he was risen from the dead. You know, he's telling them to remind them of all these things. And he's also giving them encouragement, right? Remind them that if they endure, they will reign with him. So he's reminding them of a lot of good ideas here. And these are the things that he's reminding them of. We need to be remindful of these things always too, right? So when we're discipling others, when we're ministering to others, when we're reaching others out to others, we need to have these constantly in our minds so that we can stay the straight path and that we don't deter from one side to the other. So he goes on and says, and he solemnly charges them in the presence of God. So this solemnly charge is a command. So he's commanding them. And solemnly, when you put that before things, really intensifies what the charge is. And to further that, he says, in the presence of God. So this strong command that Timoth to Timothy to solemnly charge those that teach, it intensifies the first command to remind them, and the second because it's the presence of God. And the true charge is a duty or responsibility that must be obeyed. And it's a divine charge that Timothy has been given to give to those that he is ministering to and witnessing to. So what does it mean to be in the presence of God? I think that's a, an interesting comment. If you look through scripture, it's used negatively and it's used positively. Because anybody can think of anything where it's used negatively? Being in the presence of God? For judgment? Yeah. 
Yeah. So it is in judgment. But it's also a good thing. Still, we learned in Luke, you know, Gabriel was in the presence of God. That was a good thing. Job was in the presence of God. There, so there are instances where it's a good and it's a, and it's a bad thing. I, I see it ultimately as more bad than good, just exactly what you're saying. He's reminding them that God is everywhere. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So there's kind of a, a mixture there, right? So his power, it's good to be there, and it's also bad to be away from it. But it's also scary to be in front of it. So to be in the presence of the Lord is, being in the presence of the Lord is not a, a thing we should take lightly. And why is that? Because aren't we always in the presence of the Lord? The Lord is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. But how many times do we forget that? I know I do on a daily basis sometimes, especially when you're tempted with things or um, life's not going your way or you're meeting with somebody or talking with friends and um, we forget that God is everywhere and he is watching everything he's doing. He's, he's evaluating everything we are or we're doing. And when he's talking here about this as in the presence of God, especially when you're teaching the word, remember you are in the presence of God. Right now we are in the presence of God and we should not take that lightly at all. But my question for you guys is to, to have some talking. How do we keep that in the forefront of our minds? How do we keep the knowing that God is in our presence always there? I agree, we don't see it, right? If it's not physically in front of us all the time, we have a hard time with it. But even the Israelites had a physical representation of Christ, like they had the fire by night and the cloud by the day, and they still messed up, right? They even had that. Um, it's, it's just interesting that if we don't have something in front of us every day, we kind of forget that the presence of the Lord is around us, right? If we're not in, our, not in his word every day, if we're not praying every day, if we're not surrounded by other believers, it's easier to get lost in the worldly things and not know his presence. Um, for some of you I don't know, I sell dog drugs, meaning heartworm, heartworm drugs and stuff like that. And one of the hardest things we have to, that I sell is actually the heartworm preventative because what it does, it kills the heartworms intestinal parasites. Well, that's intestinal, it's inside, right? So you don't see those things. The other products I sell kill fleas and ticks, right? Those are on the back. They can get on us. We don't like that. Guess which sells more? Flea and tick stuff, right? Because you see it. It's present. You don't see the internal. But what's going to kill the dog? Heartworms, right? So it's kind of like that. If we, if we don't see it, we need to be able to see his word always, know that he's in our presence always because if we're not in his presence right there and Second Thessalonians tells us that we will be away from the presence of the Lord forever and eternity. So we need to make sure that we have that understanding that we are always in his presence if we are believers. We're always in his presence no matter what. But if you're believers, it's more important to understand that you're in his presence and everything you do is a witness for him. And it's definitely important when you're handling the word of God. Because when you handle the word of God, especially against false teachers, which we're getting ready to really jump into, um, it can be really tricky. Because some people know scripture pretty well. Who knows scripture better than anybody? The ruler of this world, right? Satan, right? And he can twist it, twist it very, very easily from the beginning, twist it on Eve, right? Did God not say? You know, he did say certain things, but he just twists it just a little bit. And if you really listen to false teachers, that's kind of what they do a little bit. They just twist a little bit or they misinterpret a little verse and you kind of if you don't know it you can kind of really get sucked into it and so we got to be really careful and be on point and being in the presence of God should make it even more of an understanding and more of a heartfelt thing that we should know to do so he goes on and he's telling what is he what is he doing what's this charge to not do and it's not to wrangle about words which is useless because what does it do it leads to the ruin of the hearers Right? So he's giving him, a, he's giving him an ultimatum. What, if, I, if you do this, if you remind them of these things, and you remind them in the presence of God, and you don't wrangle about the words, it will help those who are hearing not to be ruined. Right? But what is this wrangling of the words? 
Reign of the words is kind of um, it's tricky, right? It's kind of what I just said. Sometimes false teachers can twist things really easily. And I think what he's doing here is saying, you know, you, we should not, if it's not scriptural, if it's not doctrinal, if, they don't, if you're dealing with an unbeliever or you're dealing with a false teacher does not believe that the word of God is God's truth, then there is no sense in arguing with them. There's no sense in debating with them because all that does is take our scripture, take the, God, the truth of God's word, that is the truth, and it lowers it to human wisdom, right? If we think about, if you ever get in discussions with non-believers over certain things, they always try to put human wisdom into it and never want to go truly to the scriptures, right? All the time. I was with Phil yesterday, and Phil's had some new neighbors move in, and we were talking about that. He's got some Mormons that moved in across the street. And he was asking, we did a whole lesson on that. We did one on Mormons. And um, during that time, I had a three-hour plane ride with a Mormon, and I got to, a lot of talking and trying to figure out whether the, the issue with them is they do not, we don't believe in the same Jesus. Right? They believe in a creative being. We believe in the eternal God. And what happens in that situation, you get an argument about certain things that don't matter because they don't want to go to the scriptures. They keep wanting to bring up the Book of Mormons and bring up their philosophies. And all that is is what? It's human wisdom. It's not the word of God. It's not the truth. It's not true wisdom. And so we got to be really careful. That's what's wrangling about words. We don't need to do that because what does it do? What does he say? It leads to the ruin of the hearers. And who are these hearers? The hearers are more than likely the congregation, right, are the people that are around listening to these debates, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to cause any issues that could affect those who hear God's word. False teaching in 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul refers to it as the doctrine of demons, right? So you are wrestling not with flesh and blood, but with spirits, right? They are instilling that into these false teachers, and it's really hard to wrestle with that. And there's no sense in getting away from God's truth because we know that the only thing that can battle that is the word of God. How did Jesus respond to all the temptations, right? responded with the word of God. He didn't respond with human wisdom. He was God. He, he was way beyond, way beyond that. But he stuck to the scriptures. And when we talk about this wrangling of words too, I think we need to discuss a little, little bit too. So it's okay to have discussions among believers, right? Um, there's a lot of denominations out there right now. Um, some have gone astray from the truth a lot. They've let certain things um, wiggle into to their doctrine, feminism, uh, abortion, marriage, um, all kinds of issues that a lot of congregations or denominations have kind to kind of let slip in, and it has really gotten away from the Word of God and gotten away from the truth. Those things, to me, are okay to wrangle about, right? Because we can fight with them on that because we can stick to the Scriptures and show them where they're wrong. Once they start trying to bring in human wisdom, that's when you are, I'm done. There's no point in talking that. If we're not going to discuss from the scriptures, we need to make sure that we are not doing that. We are going through that. The other time it's good to, to I don't call it wrangling, but have a discussion with other believers is when we're trying to get scripture right and we're trying to get doctrine right. right? We think about Acts 15 when Paul's out and the Jews are saying the new converts, converts need to be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, that's you're adding to this case by faith alone. So what does Paul do? Paul travels to Jerusalem, and they have it called the Jerusalem Council, and he meets with the other apostles, and they work it out, and they discuss, and they come out and say, look, if you're a Gentile, you do not need to be circumcised. If you're already circumcised, that's great. If you're not circumcised, you don't have to be, right? And so those are, the, over time, have been going on. All these councils have been coming together and meeting to make sure that we have the scriptures right, and they have godly men who are being, next in the verse line, to be diligent with the word in order to present it correctly to the congregations and to the people of Christ and the people of fallen. I think sometimes other times we need to discuss is when terminology gets messed up. And what I mean by that is today we have a lot of words that mean the same thing, but they're different words. And so when you're having a discussion with people, I've found it definitely lately, that when you have a discussion with people, it's really better to define what you're talking about before you actually get into the subject, Right? Um, I know in our church, like, election is a, is a huge thing. And when I have discussions with people on that, you really have to define what you mean by being chosen or being elected or predestined, right? There's, there's certain words that people want to, our foreknowledge is right, the big one, too, is you have to define these words and actually be on the same line of what you're talking about. Because if you don't, especially with that subject, a lot of human wisdom tries to come in. And it's like, no, we're not, we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with what Scripture says. So sometimes it's okay to wrangle a little bit. What he's down here, though, is do not be wrangling with useless. See, 
word, wrangle about words which is useless. So useless words that mean nothing, that are going to twist the truth, that's human wisdom, and it's going to lead the ruin to the hearers. So how do we do that? How do we go about that? Before we forget that, let me ask you a question on that, on, on the wrangle words. How do you see this played out in the church? I've mentioned some things, but how do y'all see wrangling with words? How do you see this in the church today or even outside the church? What are some subjects? Patrick? Yeah. 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 You're talking past each other about certain things because you get caught up in certain terminology and certain doctrines that aren't really doctrines, right? And it's like you get all the weeds, and, and that's what Patrick's saying. You get messed up there. What else do we wrangle about words within the church? Or how is this played out in the church? I mentioned some of them. Does anybody have any other ones like feminism and. Um, that's a big one. Yes, marriage. Yeah. Don't understand, they avoid it altogether. Yeah. So he's saying they avoid, people avoid certain scriptures that, about certain doctrines and then they don't know enough about it. So then they start wrangling about the words of what that is and what that means, which is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, but it's not true, right? I mean, we, we got to teach what scripture teaches. Yeah. How about outside the church? You ever get in arguments or discussions and wrangle about words with individuals outside the church? Non-believers? Yeah. I'll see smiles over here. So that's, that's a yes. I know I have, and um, it does twofold. Once it, when it never seems, to, and I, I love studying this because it's like next time I think I'm just going to be like, yeah, we're, we're done. I'm bringing up scripture. If, if we don't want to listen to that, let's just move on to something else and more cordial because it kind of gets you a little frustrated. Um, they always bring in their own, like I said, their own human wisdom, and it just doesn't match up, and they won't, it, gets, it, it gets battling, right? And we need to know that the word does not return void, so we just need to stick to scripture. But I think sometimes, which is easier to detect? Is it easier to detect the stuff that's coming in from the outside, or is it easier to detect stuff that's from the inside? Does that question mean anything? Like false doctrine stuff. Is it easier to detect false or human wisdom within the church or outside the church? Where? In, within the church? Somebody said, I can't see where it's coming from. Oh, you think it's easier to detect within the church? Uh, and that's a great point too, like that. We want to go and say basically we want to show love to them, right? And we want to change it, but but they're being fake too, so it's hard to detect. And I think that's what he's saying here. It's hard to detect, and that's one reason why he leads into verse 15. And this is a, a very important strategy here. So be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So this is the second point. We need to be diligent with God's word. So the word diligent here is actually strong. It's, it's, it's an earnest. It's a seeking after. It's a, des, it's a strong desire to find out what's going on in something or to be um, a good at something, right? It's, it's a huge, it's a very important meaning. Um, 
I don't know, workman, diligent, this is uh, to be the best at what you can be. Does anybody, everybody know who Kobe Bryant is? I, I like basketball. So, uh, so Kobe Bryant, if you don't know, especially some younger people probably, um, he passed away a few years ago in a hel- helicopter crash, but he was probably one of the top five players in the NBA of all time. And he was uh, talking about his workout schedule and why he was so good. And this started, he started doing this in high school. So this is what he says. So Kobe Bryant was a most audacious worker. He says, if your job is to be the best basketball player in the world, he says, you have to practice. He says, if you get up at 10 a.m. and train for two hours from 12 to 2, you still have to let your body recover. So you will only be able to get out again and resume training at 6 to 8 p.m. He said, those are two sessions. So now imagine if you woke up at 3 a.m. and trained at four, from 4 to 6 and were back at it again from 9 to 11, then again from 2 to 4, then again from 7 to 9. He says, that's four sessions. He says, if you keep doing this up for, if you keep, keep up with this for years, the separation between you and the, your peers will grow larger and larger so that by year five or six, you will be so far ahead that you will be among the best in the world. I start my day early because I can get more in. Isn't that amazing? He's doing that since high school and getting up that dedication. What if we had that dedication with God's word? Now, he got paid a lot of money to play a game and could do all that, right? We have jobs, we have families, we have responsibilities. But the point is there. If we really earnestly desire to know God's word, we, shouldn't we have that desire and that striving to do that? Do we spend that much time in his word to make sure that we are getting it right? So that's the earnestness that we should have. And this is the main verse he's talking about here because it supports all the other things he's doing here, right? And this is also what he's saying here in this verse is to be diligent, to be a workman, to be approved so that you won't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed, teacher. Don't be ashamed at what you're presenting to your congregation. James tells us very clearly that those who desire to teach will be judged more harshly. So if you're going to teach and you just have that desire, you need to be diligent in your studies and with the scriptures so that you will not be an ashamed, ashamed teacher, but that you will be able to handily accurate the word of God. So he goes on, he says, right now, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. So the word present here in the Greek has, I'm not going to say it because I can't really speak Greek, but the first part is para. The pretext is para. Para means to come alongside. So this is a beautiful thing, saying be diligent, be earnest to come alongside God here. It's an invitation to be with God in his word. And he says if you come alongside yourself and be approved to God. So what does it mean to be approved? These moths are killing me. What does it mean to be approved? If I'm approved of something, what does that mean? To you guys. God writes the check. Is that what you said? Yeah. 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 It's in accordance with what God's doing. He's He's approved of you. He's put you through the test. He's put you through the ringer. And what you have done, He is approving of that, right? So he's saying, come alongside God, be tested to God as a workman. Be tested to God as somebody has proven himself to put in the work, to accurately handle God's scripture. Be tested by God to be able to come come inside of him so that you can do the work of God, that you can present the word of God to the congregation in an accurate way. And Paul goes on to say, prove to God as a workman. Workman here can be many different things, but I think one thing it definitely means is that you are supposed to, a workman was a craftsman back then. Somebody that labored in their work was a profession in their work. So we have, um, you know, you think of a woodworker these days, it's kind of lost some of the stuff, but you look at a tradesperson, I think sometimes, or a welder, or somebody that works with their hands, and the craft that it takes to continually to get something perfect and right. Right? I'm not good at that. <laughs> I'm the guy who measures once and cuts four or five times and then has to get a new piece of board because I cut it too much. Um, so I'm not the best woodworker in the world. 
But I need to be more diligent at that, right, obviously. But what he's saying here is you need to be a workman who consistently works and gets to perfection and perfects the art so that you will not be ashamed. If you know that you put the work in, if you know that you have spent the time in the scriptures, if you know that you, if you were standing before God in the presence of God, that he reminded him of in verse 14, if you're standing in the presence of God that you have been tested and you have been approved, then you won't be ashamed. You don't need to be ashamed. What you need to be ashamed is if you haven't done the work, you haven't put in the time, maybe you have listened to the wrong pastors or the wrong teachers, and you're bringing in stuff that is from the world and not from Christ himself or not from God himself. And we don't need to be ashamed because we're accurately handing the word of truth. And the word accurately here means really a straight line. And I think this even goes back to the Old Testament, right? When God told them, do not veer from the left or the right. Stay straight. Straight line. I was listening to a little bit on this. There's some commentaries on here. And, um, and the commentary was talking about how Paul is known to be a tent maker. Right? But actually the word really means a leather worker, but you would use leather, skin, goat hides, whatever they had to make tents. And I've never been a sewer or uh, anything like that. Some of you maybe have made a dress, made some clothes. Uh, but they say if you don't get your line straight, if it doesn't match up, then the piece isn't going to go together, right? Correct? I don't know anybody sew or is that, is that right? If you don't have all the pieces in line and cut in straight lines, then it's not going to match up. And think about Paul as he's making tents. You can't take one goat hide and make a whole tent. That'd be a really large goat or anything that they would kill back then unless, I don't know, what would be that big. So they had to sew it together to make their tents. And if they cut it just wrong, they veer to the left, they veer to the right, then it would mess the whole tent up. And that's what he's saying here with the word of God. If you veer to the left or the right, if you misinterpret scripture, if you put human wisdom in certain areas of scripture, then you're going to mess it up. And it's not going to be right. You're not going to be accurately handling God's word. And when he talks about the word of truth here, obviously at this time there were some letters circulating, but the whole scriptures hadn't put together. The word of truth here means the gospel, right? And how do we know this? A little bit, we can go down in, eight, in uh, verse 18 when he says, the men have gone astray, saying the resurrection has, already ta- resurrection has already taken place, and we'll get to that in a minute. But they're already misinterpreting and twisting the gospel message about Christ being risen from the dead in a bodily form. They're already messing up the true gospel that Paul teaches. We know Paul states that if any gospel is preached other than the one he preached, even if him or angels came and preached something he already preached, they should be accursed. That is the word of truth. So we need to be diligent to present ourselves, approved to God's workmen. We do not need to be ashamed of teachers if we've done that right. And we need to accurately handle, handle the word of truth, to handle the gospel. And I love when he says approved to God. What is he not saying? We're not be approved to men. Men are not our ultimate test. Sometimes I think we, we think that, right? I don't, I don't know, y'all. I know sometimes as pastors, you want to get your back padded after a, after a lesson or after a teaching or after a sermon and hope that somebody heard it, hope that somebody got it right. Hope you didn't offend too many people that you're trying to please men. What Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. See, guys, we need to make sure that we are answerable to God and not to men. We need to please God with our teaching, with our talk, with our language, not men. We are not answerable to men. We are answerable to God, who is the ultimate judge and jury. One day we will have to stand before the throne and answer for what we've done as believers and as unbelievers. And if we handle his word, that is to be done more importantly than anything else. And so after all this, he gives him some advice on what not to do. How do we, how do we keep being diligent in God's word? He says in verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So avoid worldly chatter. Do not engage in human wisdom. That's my point here. Paul gave some of the same advice to Titus. In Titus 3.9 he says, But avoid foolish excuse me, controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So how do we do this? How do we avoid 
engaging in matters that lead us, that lead us to lose focus on God and his will. As Paul calls it, would lead us to further ungodliness. And I want to caveat that. So the further ungodliness, we'll get into a little bit, but further ungodliness also just means there's people that are already ungodly. So not only are you hampering believers with this worldly talk, but you're also going to push the other unbelievers into further ungodliness, if that's even possible. So they avoid worldly and empty chatter. And I love how he prefaces the worldly with empty. It's empty. All human wisdom is empty. All our worldly chatter is empty. It does not bring back any kind of fruit. The only thing that produces fruit in our lives is the word of God. Now we can have fun. We can talk. We can encourage one another. Um, we can have, play games and we can be, well, I am sarcastic with a lot of things. Um, but honestly, that's not what he's necessarily talking about. He's talking about worldly chatter that brings back questioning the word of God that would bring up other matters that bring no resolve and no fruit within the body. It's just empty. So what do you guys think today? And I think, and I think worldly chatter can be a lot of different things, um, especially when you're talking about false teachers. But beyond that, what are some worldly stuff that we can get caught in that takes us further from God and further from the scriptures? Or even, because it's going to have us question his scriptures, especially the, today in these times. Anything come to mind? Politics? Yeah. How does that lead us down the wrong road? That's, that's perfect. Because we start going down that road, we start putting our trust in what? Man and not the sovereignty of God, knowing that he's in control of everything. What are some other worldly things that we can discuss that just return empty? <laughs> Caleb. Yeah, Jessica. Yeah, because what are they not calling it what it is? Sin, right? You call it everything but what it actually is and leads you down the wrong path. And it's just emptiness. Because if you don't address the actual issues, which is the sin in your life, which is only scripture can handle, then you're never helping really anybody anyway. You know. Anything else that we view as worldly? Yeah. And the worst is when the, the church starts to teach on those things, from, not from Scripture, but from a human wisdom aspect, right? So then you're hearing it from the pulpit, and you're not doing your own studying, right? So then you take that as, oh, that must be what the Bible says, and it's not, and it leads you, and it returns empty, right? Yeah. Brian.
Because what does it do when you talk about this stuff, even if you're not focused on Scripture, it brings up stuff that shouldn't, right, in your mind and can lead you down paths and stuff, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so we need to avoid that kind of talk at all, at all possible because we do not want to lead to further ungodliness. And he goes on with a further explanation why you don't need to do this. In verse 17, and he says, And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So he calls out two people here, which we'll talk about in a second. But look at this. He says, if you keep engaging in worldly talk, worldly talk will actually spread like gangrene. And I don't know if you guys ever dealt with gangrene. I haven't. I had to look it up and see what gangrene was. Um, supposedly, I guess gangrene, especially, if, I guess it can still happen today. But it have, if you get gangrene, it can start off very small and with a matter of moments can spread and take over the whole body. Um, and then you're dead. So honestly, they, they say if you get diagnosed with gangrene, it can be treated with penicillin. But if you don't catch it quick enough to give the penicillin time to work, like the penicillin or the antibiotics can't even keep up with how fast gangrene can spread. Um, I tried to, to do, put it in more of our terms, kind of like cancer. Um, you know, cancer gets in the cells and just starts to take over the body, starts multiplying and multiplying. Um, and so... This is something that he's talking about. We need to avoid this because if not, it gets in and it can take over quickly. It can just take over the whole body, your whole mind, your whole life, just like that. And then there's nothing that can help you from that point on. Because, again, he's, I believe when he talks to further ungodliness, he's, he's talking about those who are unbelievers. And now they've really been spread. But even with us, if we let that stuff seep in, we're not doing anybody any good with it, right? We're not teaching God's word. We're letting the worldly things infiltrate and just take over. So it spreads very fast. And so then he calls out um, two people in particular, Hymenaeus and Philetus. This is the second time we've seen Hymenaeus' name. It was also with uh, Alexander Coppersmith. And Paul is telling him, warning Timothy to avoid these two at all costs. It sounds like now that Hymenaeus has picked up another, a different person to join him in his little little ex- false teaching and trying to lead people astray by a guy named Philetus. Uh, these may possibly have been men who were elders at some point in the church and who Paul was referring to as the wolves that would rise up among the sheep. But nonetheless, obviously they are bad enough that Paul wants to call them out by name. And he's, and he's telling people you need to avoid people like this. These are the ones that are false teachers. And I think we need to make sure that we do stay away from people like this, and I think it's important too, um, because I think there's a lot of times we look and we look at this and we see we see people like this, and we know we can call out the the big ones, right? Uh, I guess I shouldn't probably call out names here, but we know the the main mega church pastors, the, pro, the prosperity gospel pastors that are doing it wrong, and they're easy to to note, to see, and to identify. And I think these two are probably some way that and that big. And he's, he's telling them you need to stay away from these people and what they're teaching. Just like them, the stuff that they were teaching here has just gone like gangrene through, the, through Ephesus. And we need to avoid them. He mentions them in 120. Um, when we look at this and we see those have gone astray, what others have we seen gone astray? If we look out there, what, what in our church, what society can you call out that's gone astray? We know, I, think the, I feel like a lot of the prosperity gospel has gone astray. Um, leading the wrong, they're not teaching scripture, they're teaching me, me, me kind of an attitude that God wants to please you and give you everything you want, um, but that's, we know that's not the case. Does anybody think of any other denominations that have kind of gone the wrong path, the wrong way? What are the groups? Social issues? Some churches that have gone that way? Stuff, yep. Anything else? I think we see, yeah, Jim.
Yeah. Yeah. It is funny how that term has gone the, almost gone the wrong way now, right? When it started off as a good way. Kind of like you said, I go, you know, the old, the old saying is, if a Jehovah Witness shows up to your door, what do you tell them? I'm a Baptist, and they'll turn around and walk away. So Baptists used to have this good term, and now it's kind of gone a little sour um, because people, they let false doctrines slip in, and they don't hold true to the word, right? So we're not supposed to be a part of spreading this, this false doctrine like they are. And then he goes on to, and he, why does he want to do this? Verse 18 he said, and their talk was spread like gangrene among them, or Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. So they've, they're misinterpreting the gospel, saying that the resurrection, resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So we should be encouraging the faithful and not trying to upset the faithful, right? When we are diligent to study and apply God's truth and not teach falsely, it will be encouragement to the faithful. Those who are true believers will find what we teach to uplift their faith and strengthen their faith. If we don't, like he says right here, it's going to upset them, right? When you hear false teachings, does that upset you? Cindy hates it when I turn through the channels and I find one of those uh, church channels and, and she knows I'm just going to sit there and get upset when I start listening to it because I just, it just, it does, it just makes me so mad how they're twisting God's word and it makes me even madder that you have these auditoriums that are filled with people that are just sucking it in, right? And it's just like, it's just, I get frustrated. She's always like, could you just turn it and not get mad? I was like, but I want to know a little bit how are they twisting God's word so we, can, we know how to fight it too. But yes, but it does make me mad. It does not increase my faith in man sometimes, which it shouldn't, but, um, but it does hurt that. But we shouldn't be doing that. We should be teaching God's words that, they will, that we will increase the faith of those, right? And that's a big example of that. Says so Paul goes on to tell Timothy that he needs to hold on to God's word, not get mixed up in debates that mean nothing, and be assured that God knows who He has called and will bring them through the end. So he gets in the last verse, verse nineteen. Sorry, I had to speed this up a little bit. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal: the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is sustained for wickedness. So he kind of ends this section with a, a firm affirmation. If you are a true believer, God knows who are his. And this firm foundation is the church. God knows who his church is. John 10, 25 through 30, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Isn't that awesome? It's the preservation of the saints. It's nothing that we can do on our own. It's just like salvation. It's nothing that we can do on our own. It's no works that we do. And here, to get us to the end, the church will stand. The firm foundation of God stands. It's not of man. It's of God. And then he goes on further to have this seal. He sealed us. Just like a king would seal a, 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 an envelope that nobody was to open, or they would seal a tomb, or they would seal something. When you put that signet ring seal on, that was belonging to the king, and nothing else could touch it or open it without the king's approval. They were sealed. We are sealed. Revelations 9.4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Guys, we are, if you are a believer in Christ, you are a sealed of God. He is not going to let you go. He knows who you are. He has called you from the beginning of time. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world. He has put his seal on you, and he's not going to let you go. He will not let his church fall. Christ's church will stand forever over Hades, over death, over hell, his church will stand forever. This would be such a comfort to us, right? And I love how Paul ends it here with this comforting statement. But he does give us a charge. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain for wickedness. So if you call yourself a child of God, if you call yourself a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, 
if you remind, you're reminded that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and you hold to the true truth, not a false gospel, your charge is to abstain from wickedness, to avoid all evil. And when we look at evil, we look at different things, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, Or do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians, he adds to the list immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these should not be among believers. You know what else shouldn't be among believers? False teaching. He doesn't say that here in this, but that is wickedness too. False teaching is wickedness. So this should be an encouragement to us that we have the seal of God on us, but it also be an encouragement to us and charge to us that we need to abstain from wickedness and abstain, abstain from the things of the world, and we need to be righteous before our Father. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this section of scripture that is so powerful. Lord, I pray that, um, that, it, was, that it was taught rightly and that we would all be men and women who are not ashamed to be teachers of your word to whoever we come in contact with, Lord. Lord, I pray that we hold your word in the highest esteem. It is the truth, the only truth. There is no truth out there set for the word. And Lord, we pray that when we engage with unbelievers or we engage with, engage with others who are claim to be believers but are teaching false doctrines that we have your word stored in our heart that we're able to bring about the things that we have learned to be able to refute those things Lord but Lord I pray that we stick to scripture do not allow us to rely on our own wisdom which is nothing help us to only rely on the wisdom of your word and your truth which is the wisdom of God Lord I pray that we would be a church that understands that you have preserved us and you will continue to preserve us to the end. And I pray that we are a church that abstains from all wickedness. I pray that we are a church when people see us, they see a difference in us. They see a church that is on fire for Christ, to do the right things, to live a life that is righteous before others, but most importantly before you. We do not answer to men, we answer to you alone. You are the judge and the jury. Lord, we love you, we praise you for who you are and what you continue to do in our lives. Lord, help to continue to grow us, help your spirit within us to mature us, to push away the flesh, and to let us be more spirit-filled. We love you and praise you in Christ's name I pray. Amen.